Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist. Seriously Geeky. Episode 79. Existential Threats and Risk. We Can't Escape Impermanence. Professor James Hughes joins us again to explore the dark side of transhumanism. The possibility that advanced technologies could wipe out all of humanity. It turns out that wisdom is as important as ever, even on the road toward a more techno-utopian future. This is part three of a three-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. So what we've talked about so far has been more of the, I guess you could say the rosy side of the, of the picture of transhumanism. And you're sure well aware of this, and I've been reading more about this uh, lately, and that that's that there are these existential threats that actually come along with these changes in technology. Things like uh, nanotechnology gone haywire, what they call the gray goose scenario, where little self-replicating nanobots basically consume the entire biosphere, which wouldn't be good. Um, things like genetic warfare, um, all sorts of things that could actually threaten us as an entire species, uh, whereas the technologies we've had in the past have really only threatened you know, certain groups of people or individuals, but haven't threatened our entire species. So I'm wondering if you could uh, speak a little bit about what we should be doing to prepare for these dangers and, and if it's something we should be preparing for now. Well, the, the first point is that ex- existential threats and existential risks are not just from human technology or human human cause. They're also the fact that the universe is not necessarily friendly. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and so we have to start with the recognition that the apparent lack of extraterrestrial intelligence may suggest that it may be very hard for a species to get beyond whatever we're at now, given giant asteroid strikes and gamma ray bursts and super volcanoes and all the other things that we know have happened in the past and very well might wipe us out in the future. So if we are to survive as a species or as intelligent life on this planet, or hopefully also off of this planet, we have to become dramatically more robust, resilient species, a more diverse species, and um, a more powerful species able to resist some of these uh, these buffets of fate and nature. Mm-hmm. Now, some of those risks that we face are also our own of our own making, nuclear weapons, bioterrorism, those all are also threats to the um, future of the human race. And then there are some novel ones that are created by the kinds of technologies that we're talking about. So it may not be um, an end to intelligence or an end to the human race per se to if we were to become, say, a, um, a Borg-like species. But it might create a, a kind of stasis, you know, the, the land of the lotus eater stasis or the Borg stasis. There are various kinds of, of stasis that we could get trapped in um, that we have to think very carefully about how we avoid those sand traps on the way to a diverse post-human future. And I think, again, the Buddhist cosmology and the Buddhist way of understanding dynamic psychology uh, provides us with some very interesting um, advice about that. You know, you don't see 
advice in many traditions about things like absorption into non-existent, you know, the, into the emptiness state <laughs> right. as being a sand trap on the way. But that is one of the kinds of advice that the Buddhist tradition offers. Um, so I, I think that, yes, existential risk is, it, it's not certainly not a, a domain solely unto transhumanists, but transhumanists bring something special to it because we talk about those post-human uh, sand traps in ways that other risk assessors don't. Right, right. So it sounds like there, there's a distinction there between you know the existential threats that nature, you know, provides or that we provide indirectly, like through climate change, and then the ones that are a little bit more readily dangerous, like with full mature nanotechnology, where someone who you know programs it to wipe out the biosphere could do it pretty rapidly if there weren't things to stop them. So it seems like they're the transhumanist perspective adds this this whole new element of. Uh, more advanced technologies that have kind of bigger potential threats. Um, right. Yeah. I think there's a, there's another point from a Buddhist point of view about existential risks, and that is that when one starts to think in a techno-utopian way about the prospects for radically extended life expectancy, then people say, well, aren't Buddhists supposed to be about the accepting sickness, aging, and death? You know, isn't that the first noble truth to uh, embrace the inevitability of sickness, aging, and death? Which I say to, that doesn't mean you don't have to get, that you, you can stand in the road in front of a bus and you don't have to move when the bus is coming because, oh, I embrace sickness, aging, and death, so I'm, I get run over by the bus. But it does mean that you are prepared at any moment for the possibility that you might get whacked. <laughs> you know? Right. So, you know, as we're working on this prospect of trying to create radically extended human life expectancies and looking forward to a post-human prospect, at any moment, the Yellowstone caldera could blow up, wipe out 99% of the life on the surface of the planet, mm-hmm. and, and probably all humans. And that would be the, th- you know, in our last minutes, the degree of, of equanimity with which we face that prospect is kind of the test of our dharmic fortitude um, and of our, of, our, of our wisdom. And we have to live with that recognition that, uh, that all of those kinds of threats are out there, nuclear war and all those threats could change uh, our situation in a moment. Um, and or we could just get, you know, just fall off a mountain ourselves and, and die from accidents or, or whatever. So I don't think that we want to uh, use these techno-utopian possibilities to get it uh, attached to the uh, necessity that we ourselves are going to survive into this future. The same embrace of the inevitability, the Anicca of life and mm-hmm. the inevitability of, um, of possible non-existence, not to mention the fact that we don't exist in the first place, but our, our corporal non-existence in the future is still out there. Would you say most, uh, if any other transhumanists, kind of have that perspective of uncertainty that they bring to the to the table, or is that is that kind of a unique thing with the Buddhist perspective? Well, there are um, a disproportionate number of Buddhists uh, involved in transhumanism. So, some, at least the Buddhists among us are open to some of those things, and right. I think some of the non-theists are also are similarly um, th- there are uh, strains of secular philosophy like I mentioned Derek Parfit many transhumanists are 
our Parfitian and their approach to personal identity and and certainly our turn. We've, we've taken a slightly darker turn in recent years with the consideration of existential risks. There's an organization called the Lifeboat Foundation, which is all about existential risks, a transhumanist organization. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think we're, we're a little bit darker than we were in the exuberant 90s. <laughs> um, and so, yes, I think many of us are aware of these prospects. That's great. That's great. So... One last question. This kind of related. I'm not sure how we'll tie it into the to the Buddhist conversation, but I'm sure there'll be some tie-in. Um, your last book, Citizen Cyborg, you you looked at at the different um, political the, the political landscape and looked at the different positions there on the development and deployment of these different technologies we've been talking about. And it seems like there are a lot of people that don't want to see these kind of technologies released. And what's the likelihood that 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 they could actually succeed in that. Is this something that has its own momentum that's, you know, too strong for any political, you know, group to stop? Or is this something that's, that's, you know, potentially could be halted? Uh, I think potentially everything could be halted. Um, but uh, I think the, the best bet is that we are slowly inching towards the wider and wider availability of cheaper and cheaper uh, and more and more powerful biotechnologies that will enable extended life expectancies and and these kinds of duro technologies that I talked about. Um, And that's because each step of the way, there is an incremental benefit that people, you know, the, the, the people who are the bioconservatives, as we call them, the people who are trying to call a halt to the whole affair, they're pointing down the road as we are, and they're saying, look, you could end up like the Borg, so therefore you don't want to have Ritalin and, and uh, Prozac. And people are saying, well, you know, let's worry about the Borg later. Uh, Ritalin and Prozac seem pr- like pretty useful drugs today. Um, and I think that every step of the way, it's going to be like that. Now, we're, I think... Most transhumanists are as concerned about the head as the bioconservatives because we want to look down the road and make sure that we end up on the right side of the future instead of the wrong side. So um, we do have to acknowledge the legitimacy of regulation and um, and public choice in all of this, that uh, we don't want people willy-nilly to walk down a rosy path and end up someplace they didn't intend so it's not the matter of whether it can be controlled or not. It's the values that you bring to it. And I think the problem for many bioconservatives is that they're they're addicted to a notion of humanness that is uh, very specific to Judeo-Christianity. When you look at the um, India and Thailand and China and Japan and Korea, and you ask questions such as, do you think that parents should be able to use genetic technologies to make their children more virtuous or more intelligent? There are vast majorities in all of those countries who say yes, and they're very pessimistic about them in uh, Europe and North America. And that's largely because of this Judeo-Christian hangover, that there's a certain um, humanness that was created by God at the beginning of time, and that to screw around with things is playing God. Um, and that we there are natural boundaries that are beyond which it's hubris to go, and th- and those are Western problems um, for the most part. So that's where a lot of our, our rub comes in the West. In uh, in Eastern cultures, you don't have that. And, you know, you have you have chimeric gods in Hinduism who are half human, ha- half animal, and as you pointed out, you know, have got the godlike realms that we're talking about. You have in, the, in Buddhism implicitly the notion that human beings can become more than the gods, can right. uh, achieve greater uh, states of mind and, and physical abilities than the gods. So I think a lot of the resistance comes from these 
um, Christian or quasi-Christian objections around the body and humanness in the West. Is there anything else that you want to mention in terms of, of the interplay here between uh, transhumanism, ethics, and then the Buddhist uh, tradition and practice? Well, I just want to mention that the IET Cyborg Buddha Project, which also involves my colleague Mike Latora, who's a Zen priest in New Mexico, and um, uh, George Dvorsky, who's a Buddhist uh, practitioner and blogger in Toronto. The three of us have been promoting this project um, through the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, and there's a blog feed that people can subscribe to. And we um, also have an email list called Transpirit. Mm. The Transpirit list on Yahoo groups is for uh, scientific research on um, altered states of consciousness and moral behavior and um, evolutionary psych explanations for religion, a bunch of different fields, but from uh, a, a Buddhist and secular secular in the sense of non-theistic um, point of view about how we might be able to use these technologies in the future. So if people are interested in these, I recommend that they get on the list and also check out our, our blog feed. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll put a couple links uh, to go along with this episode so people can just go right there from the episode page. Great. Great. Well, thank you, James. I really appreciate taking the time to chat with us and for sharing your unique and interesting perspective on this stuff. Thank you. I had a great time. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.